episode 17 of The Change Journals features Mary DeMuth. Mary has written more than 30 books. She is an artist, and Mary hosts a Pray Every Day podcast. You can probably guess it's a daily podcast dedicated to praying through the scriptures every single day. Mary is also a victim of childhood sexual abuse. You can hear Mary's story on episode 31 of the Reboots podcast. In this episode, though, this is the Change Journals inside the Reboots podcast. Mary joins us to talk about her calling to help bring healing and change to victims of sexual abuse and change to the church. This is Mary's brand new book, We Too, How the Church Can Respond Redemptively to the Sexual Abuse Crisis. Hey, Mary, thanks for inviting us into your life again today. Uh, we've, we've visited with you before on the Reboots podcast, but what I want to talk to you about today is incredibly important. Uh, so I, I just want to kind of catch up and uh, you've got a new book out. Tell me about it. Yeah, it's called We Too, How the Church Can Respond Redemptively to the Sexual Abuse Crisis. So easy write, easy read. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, you know, I like to write easy, lighthearted things. Uh, It released uh, in August and um, just now starting to get feedback from people. Uh, The audience is anybody, but uh, primarily I would say it's for uh, leaders of ministries and churches who want to become empathetic toward those who are hurting and struggling with this particular issue, but it's also for survivors who just need some language to um, describe what they've gone through, a way for them to say, hey, this is how I feel, and this is what it's like. And um, so hopefully it's a tool of empathy as well as an instructive tool and a, a creative imagination about, or prophetic imagination about what the church could be in this era of Me Too. Yeah, big topic indeed. Uh, and and I remember when you started writing this book, you you have been incredibly active on social media, and you've you've also been very vulnerable. So it's been it's been my privilege as well as thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of others, to just pray for you as you walk through this process. Uh, I can't imagine that the process has been easy for you because you are also a victim of sexual abuse. Well, thankfully, I have told my story enough times that it's lost its sting for sure. Um, And God's done so much work in my heart that I don't mind telling it anymore. It's not a problem, but I still really ache for all the other stories that I hear and uh, feel the weight of um, just the heartache that's out there and the, the people who are longing for light and hope and And so that, I think, is probably harder for me than my own story. I feel like that's been kind of, it's in its process of being worked through. But for those who haven't told their story before, or those who are still immobilized by it, those are the folks that I wrote this for. Wow. You know, we were just beginning to have this conversation uh, when I had you on the Reboots podcast to share your story, and, and I had asked you a little bit about uh, how difficult it can be to be inside the church and to continue to advocate for change. And um, as I remember, you talked about, yeah, it is difficult, but that your church family has been incredibly supportive. Walk me through what the last year has looked like as you have publicly said, 
we're we're going to dive into this. Have you had pushback or acceptance? Walk me through that a little bit. Yeah, uh, joyfully, I've had acceptance in my own church family. I just um, this week was prayed for, or last week was prayed for by the elders of my church, and they made a motion to read this book as their next book that they tackle. They like to read a book every month. So I'm really grateful for that. And they've been um, just really, really supportive. And I'm um, humbled. I think, you know, there's, I think sometimes what can happen is, Within an advocacy community, there can be some discord because people do things different or they have a different idea. And so there has been some pushback in that sense. But um, for the most part, it's been mostly positive. I think the dynamic there is that um, you come off as a real jerk when you <laughs> when you accuse a sexual abuse victim of things or you malign them. So I am a little bit protected because I have that status. Um, so far, it's been people have been really nice. <laughs> yeah, let's let's kind of explore that just for a little bit. Uh, it, it's difficult enough for someone to say, I've been sexually abused and it's been, and it's someone that uh, is admired by the public at large. Uh, that, that's got to be really scary. And especially when it takes on a public persona, um, Man, what what do you advocate? Because isn't that how we find healing is to to say this happened to me? How do you work through that? Right. And we, we've seen a lot of those narratives over the past year, past two years of the outing of, you know, maybe more celebrity or well-known pastors. And um, there's a really common pattern that happens. Uh, initially, what will happen is, uh, someone who's been hurt goes to the the leadership structure and they tell them that this happened and the leadership structure says, thanks for letting us know. And then they don't do anything about it. And then eventually the person gets really scared and frustrated that there might be other victims out there. So they are kind of forced to go to the press. Like they don't really want to. It's like the last thing they want to do. They don't want to everybody know what happened to them. It's painful and awful. And why would you want to do that? But their sense of wanting to protect the body is so important. So they'll go to the press, the press then takes it. And then people within that body, whether it's a ministry or a church, begin to attack the person who is the whistleblower. And they, um, they're merciless. I've seen um, texts that are like, I wish that you were dead, or God's going to mm. kill you, or you're Satan's mm. instrument, or, you know, just really awful things. But then what will happen is because one person dared to tell a story, inevitably, if the person who's being accused is a predatory person, there will be other stories that come. And eventually the weight of 10, 12, 15 stories then begins to show the leadership community that they missed it. And then they do something like discipline or send away the leader. And then um, the poor person who blew the whistle and the, is then left in the aftermath of all of these terrible things said to them by Christ followers. And so there's there's not a lot of winners in all of that. Um, and part of the reason I wrote the book was to say, let's reverse that narrative and let's let's be a people who listen to people who make an outcry instead of always, always, always pushing back. Yeah, I've got an episode that's about to release in the next few weeks, uh, a pastor who was falsely accused. And you, I think you touched on 
part of the nuance that is super important is that that there's typically a body of work for someone who's genuinely abused someone else. Um, it's not it's not just one time. So how are we? You, you would think the church would be able to figure this out that that facts are facts and emotion is emotion and that we could be fair. I mean, Jesus is all about justice, right? And we don't seem to be very good at it, do we? <laughs> no, and that's why it's important. If if there is a credible allegation leveled, it's important to, if it's a criminal act, then it must be reported to the authorities. But if it, if it involves something different like sexual harassment, which can be criminal depending on the degree in which it happens. Um, an independent investigation is really helpful because if you have a dependent investigation, it's internal, meaning you have this natural bias toward protecting your leader and you don't want to believe any other narrative. But if it's independent, then you can then you can truly understand what's going on. If it's a false accusation, it will get weeded out in that process typically. And then if it's not, and if there's more, an independent investigation will find those folks or, you know, begin to start unturning, turning over the rocks of, of what's been happening in the past. Do, do you think every church body at the local level should have a plan for what to do if or when there is an accusation of sexual abuse? And if so, what, what does that look like? Yes, they absolutely must. They must be proactive. And I think what's been happening in a lot of these situations is people haven't prepared. They don't have any sort of idea of what to do. And so when it comes, they emotionally respond instead of thinking about it logically like a checklist. So yes, they need to have a checklist of the steps that they will take. Typically, that looks like um, if there is a crime involved, it must be reported. So that's kind of the very first step. Um, at after that, there's varying things that you can do, but um, informing the press is helpful to get ahead of it and to say, yeah, we missed it. This is, we're grieved, we're sad having a, a church congregational meeting if this was something that happened within your midst. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe um, choosing to, to sacrifice and to pay for if the person was abused within your congregation to pay for trauma-informed therapy or however, you know, you want to do that. Um, there's several different things that you can do, but there's something really beautiful about having a checklist <laughs> that is non-emotional, yeah. that has yes. been proactively created by your church staff, not by some other entity. You can look at other ones as examples, but to make it unique to your context. Hmm. Wow, that's wise. I, I'm struck by the, the We Too movement that is part of your, your, your book, uh, and and I just checked out your Twitter profile, which is amazing. You've got the 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 card above that says "Haunted by Sexual Abuse, We Heal Better Together." What it what does that look like? Well, that's and maybe this is my own bias, but it reflects what um, what my experience has been and. When I began to share my story, the first two times I shared my story is extremely unfruitful. I was either disbelieved and not helped or um, pushed against. So those were not very good. <laughs> but when I, after I became a Christian and I started to share in college uh, um, what happened, so many people listened to my story and they prayed for me and they prayed me toward health. And so um, 
that's been my experience and that's been my hope for this book is that we could become that kind of healing community. This is not a this this is not a diatribe against the church. It's actually very pro-church and I have found a lion's share of my healing in the circle of community, healing better together. Now that doesn't mean that I haven't had trauma-informed therapy and I haven't gone through counseling and mm-hmm. uh, retreats and reading lots of books and you know asking advice of mentors. All those things have happened. Um, there's a multidisciplinary approach to healing. It's not just one way, yeah. um, but. I don't think we heal very well in isolation. Isolation kills the soul and it causes you to live with a lot of shame and darkness. And so um, one of the first things I tell people to do is if they've never disclosed their story to write it down on a piece of paper or type it into their computer and then pray about um, God sending them someone who's safe for them to share the first time because that first time is super vulnerable and scary. And even if you can't say the words, I was sexually abused, you can hand the piece of paper or send the document off to someone and begin that healing process in the circle of two. What's been a problem in the Me Too movement is that people are disclosing for the very first time uh, on social media. And while I'm not against people telling their stories, I think it's awesome that they're telling their stories. I get worried as a as one who wants to shepherd people that they may receive pushback um, from insensitive people because we know online people lose their Christianity for whatever reason. They just become <laughs> yes. really evil and mean. Yeah. And yep. so I would hate to have someone say, yeah, me too, and then have a whole bunch of people ask insensitive questions like, what were you wearing? Are you sure it really happened? Uh, that was so long ago. You should be over it by now. Maybe God wanted to, you to go through that to bring about this present result. Like just all sorts of crazy, uh, cliched, frustrating yeah. things. Yeah, which which brings up kind of one of the things that that is most common. Well, how is it that 30 years later, you're just now bringing this up? That is not uncommon, right? And why is a is is a weird question to ask? And it's probably way too complicated for you and me to discuss right here. But just that's pretty common, isn't it? It's common for two reasons. One of the reasons is that um, when we 30 years ago in our past generations, these things were not talked about and the people in our lives told us to be quiet. Yes, And so there's that. But then there's also the emotional physiological nature of trauma that when you're abused as, especially as a child, you don't have any frame of reference for, or narrative or any words to describe what you're going through. You're not mature enough to even identify what's going on. And trauma causes you usually to freeze and not to fight or flee. Um, and so there's like some shame involved in that. Like, well, I, maybe I wanted it or I invited it cause I just sat there. I just took it. Yeah. And so, um, usually people begin their childhood disclosures at the end of their twenties, beginning of their thirties, which is usually 15 to 20 years afterwards. Mm. But I, I've seen people wait 50 years, 60 years before they disclose. And some people sadly go to their grave with that secret. And so I think there's those two dynamics, societal pressure, which I think is changing, mm-hmm. um, but then just the nature of trauma. Wow. So again, you know, we, we talk, started this conversation by me just kind of sharing how excited I am to, to visit with you now that the book's finally finished. Felt like I was a tiny little part of 
your walk through the process. And and I can't help but think of uh, earlier this year, you were about to serve on a panel for a major denominations convention, and it was already kind of nerve-wracking, right? <laughs> what t- Walk me through that, how that unfolded on social media, and then what really happened? Because that was, that was like a, a spiritual trial, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I sat in an airport all day long for no apparent reason, and uh, the plane just wouldn't go. And finally, I got on the plane, and then they were like, well, um, our staff is one minute over their deadline, so you need to get back off and wait another, you know, till tomorrow to fly out. And I was like, I can't. I have to be somewhere tomorrow morning. It was, uh, I was leaving from Dallas to go to Birmingham, Alabama. And so my dear husband, we got Mike in our car and we drove through the, he drove through the night to get me there the next morning. So yeah, that's how important it was that I be there. And that's how sweet my husband is as well. But this whole idea that you're about to talk about painful topics in such a public forum that, frankly, in some people's eyes, might have been a very negative place to have those conversations. Um, what what was the spiritual transformation there just in, in your own mind? Because there had to have been nerves, and then to have to wait was even more nerve-wracking to add stress <laughs> upon top of stress. And where was God's provision in this? Let's just throw it out there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, through my husband, there was that. And then supernatural natural strength to, you know, do that without sleep. And then um, and a joy that just came over me right prior. And this, like, deep sense of peace and what a privilege it was and how humbled I was to be asked. And the people that I was surrounded by were sweet and amazing and had great stories. And so it ended up being just joyful. It wasn't scary at all. It was Mm. just an amazing thing. And I, I found, and this was at the Southern Baptist Convention, I found a lot of people who were so deeply... Uh, desiring to see this issue come to light. And even within the, the leadership structure of that organization, I, it was very, very encouraging. What kind of questions did you get after that panel discussion? Because a lot of times we start to know how fruitful the conversations are based on the questions we start to get. Yeah, I, I think it's more like, not necessarily questions, but just receive more stories. <laughs> so we, uh, when we tell our stories, we're going first so that someone else can say, okay, I'm not alone. And I, I, now I know I'm not alone. And when someone realizes they're not alone, they want to reach out to you with their narrative and their story of what they've been through. So I did um, receive a lot of stories afterwards. And um, in terms of questions... I think there's a lot of people that are thoughtful about, okay, so what does this look like in today's church world? How can we do this and still, you know, kind of maintain order or whatever? And so I don't know that I have the perfect solution to those questions because I'm not in church leadership, but um, I love to dialogue with people about them and explore the possibilities there. And really, you just it, it can really be very simple. You can simply ask yourself in your situation, if Jesus was sitting in this room and this situation happened, what would he do? And that seems kind of simplistic, but it's 
it's really helpful too. Because mm-hmm. I don't think he would um, say, oh, I don't believe you. I don't think he would say, well, wait a minute, I need to manage the reputation of this institution. Um, I don't think he would be like, well, um, you should be over that by now. That was 25 years ago and you just lack faith. I just don't think he would say any of those things. And so that's kind of an easy way to, you know, a, a narrative that you can yeah. adapt <laughs> or a question you can ask yourself in the midst of it. Well, I'm going to go back to your Twitter profile, Mary, and um, your bio says, I help Me Too Church to Survivors find empathy and healing. It's my story, too. Is there a a process that helps you do this, or is this writing this book a labor of love and and setting up WeToo.org? what do you think that's going to look like? Well, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> it's a it's an act of obedience. Um, I I as an author, I don't. People are surprised at this, but I don't make very much money. And right. um, so, whenever I write, there has to be a, a Holy Spirit prompted problem or anger or frustration and something that is like niggling at my soul or something I read in the Bible that jumps off the page. And so this was just one of those times where I had obviously studied this issue for years. Um, I have been walking this story for a very long time. I've been public with it for decades. And it just seemed like the appropriate time to lend my voice to a discussion that I think God is stirring up. I'm one of many. I am not the only one for sure. There's amazing voices out there doing amazing work, and I am happy to cheerlead and promote them as well. How would someone get involved in WeToo.org? What what might that look like if if you're a a church member like me and you want to be part of the solution, but you have no idea where to start. What what role would that look like? There is a manifesto on the site, and you can go to we2.org forward slash manifesto. And um, it is a uh, basically a manifesto of, of how church can be um, in light of this scandal. And churches can sign it, individuals can sign it, you can send it to your church leadership and say, hey, this is really something I'm interested in. Um, there's also, if you go to forward slash resources, there's hundreds of resources to help you. I understand that this is one resource, there's lots of them out there. And so you can get started there. If you are on a healing journey, or you want to begin a healing journey, if you go to slash 21 days, the number two, the number one in days, you can get a three week free uh, healing um, email in your one email a day in your inbox for three weeks. And um, those are just all the like things that I've learned along the way that have helped me. It doesn't mean by the end of 21 days, you'll be pristine and <laughs> completely healed, but it, it'll have be a little bit farther along in the journey. So where would someone um, who, and, and I know we've talked about some of this before, but I know there is someone who's listening to this episode and they're stirring up old memories and they're realizing, wait a minute, this thing that I've been pushing down for a long time really did happen. What do I do about it? Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, to tell it to a safe person first, um, 
that's your first step. And then consider uh, praying about getting some wise counsel, um, particularly from a counsel counselor who knows sexual abuse. Um, they're going to be more helpful to you than someone that's not familiar with that mm-hmm. and with trauma, because this is a trauma that we need to recognize. Um, and begin to tell your story in those tentative places and find other people that have your story. That's why on the website it says we heal better together. Mm-hmm. It's that we need to find each other. And sometimes like my church has a um, sexual abuse survivor support group. So those are around the area and we can find them and just to be able to go there and not even say anything, just listen to other people's stories and realize you're not alone. There's a lot of people that have the story, sadly too many. And, um, they have some wisdom that you can glean as well. Where does somebody find your book, ma'am? They can get it anywhere books are sold. Um, there's a bunch of links on we That'll take them to a bunch of different buy links so they can find the cheapest one. And, uh, yeah, it's everywhere. Okay. What advice or encouragement would you have for, for someone who is feeling that call of obedience, whether it's related to sexual abuse or not, and they think they have to have a plan and have everything mm-hmm. all figured out before they can choose to, obe- to be obedient the way you've been obedient and saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to write this book. I have no idea what's going to happen next. That's kind of been my story throughout the years. And when I, just to bring it to the writer arena, um, what I learned in the very beginning of my writing career is if a publishing house or a magazine or some sort of entity asked me to do something, even though I didn't know how to do it, I would always say yes, (laughs) because I knew that I would learn along the way. And if the Lord is calling you to do something, you just have to say yes. And you have to trust that he will give you the provision. Um, That's that's the importance of leaping. Um, that's what faith is, going into dark or scary places that we know nothing about. If we already knew everything that was going to happen, then it wouldn't be called faith. It would just be called walking into what you already know. And <laughs> so, uh, and we can't control the narrative afterwards. I can't control what this book will do. It could sell five copies. It could sell 500 copies. It could sell a lot of copies. It could fuel a movement. It could drop dead. I have no earthly idea, nor can I make that outcome change or whatever. I have to leave all the outcomes in the hands of the one who holds it all. Amen. Thank you for your time, Mary. I'm going to let you get back to uh, to uh, doing the next right thing in front of you, girl. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Look for more information about how we as individuals can respond to the sexual abuse crisis in churches to those who have been sexually abused and in our nation as a whole at we2.org forward slash resources. You can also sign the We Too Manifesto. There are links to both of these tools in the show notes. And that's it for this edition of the Change Journals Inside the Reboots Podcast. Up next on the Reboots Podcast, a conversation with a Presbyterian minister in Southern California whose life was upended by unsubstantiated claims of sexual indiscretion. I'm Tracy Winchell. We'll see you next time.